This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. In today's episode, we will explore the world of talent development and inquire into philosophical assumptions underpinning talent programs. Much critique has been voiced on these systems for being harsh environments for the young athlete, and concerns have been raised on the broader unsustainability of the global sporting arms race to win ever more and more Olympic medals. Can we find a way of reimagining the philosophies of talent development towards something more sustainable and something more meaningful? And if so, what could this look like in practice? I'm delighted to have Dr. Andy Bori discussing these questions with me today. Andy is a senior lecturer in coaching and professional practice at the University of Derby, and he has also worked in elite sport, coaching and education for 30 years. Andy's PhD dissertation at the University of Gloucestershire used an autoethnographic approach to explore talent development philosophies in the UK. This work will provide a starting point for our conversation today. Welcome to the podcast, Andy. It's so nice to see you again. Thank you very much, Noura. I'm I'm delighted to be here and, and, and have the opportunity to chat about something that I think is really important in sport, and it's certainly uh, very important to me. I've been very much looking forward to this, and I think we met something maybe five years ago at Liverpool John Moores University. I remember we had a chat in the cafe, and we were both interested in something new called craftsmanship. Absolutely. I I think we actually met at a TAS conference and then I came up to see you in Liverpool because oh, that's right. our views yeah. our views on, on the world were so similar. And I think we'd been listening to so much stuff with, with that slightly critical ear thinking, yeah, I kind of don't agree with this. Mm-hmm. And and we just connected as, as two people who disagreed with the same things. I've often complained that you publish far too much and I can't keep up with it and read everything <laughs> you, you you publish. So, yeah, it'd be, be good to um, chat about this stuff today. Yeah, luckily I slowed down a little bit with trying to learn German and all those other things. But so. Thank God for that. <laughs> yeah, I'll try to get back on track. Excellent. But for our listeners, I think the background story so you worked in the academia for a long time but you also worked in talent development and elite sport for such a long time and to lead up to what we're going to explore today i think this personal story is extremely important so let's just give our listeners a little bit uh, background story of who you are and where you come from and where these critique critiques come from and this unease that you have with talent development 
All right. Well, I I started studying sports science in 1981, which is you know just over 40 years ago now, which is very depressing for me. Um, and it, so I studied it in the early part of the 80s, then the late part of the 80s, and into the early 90s. I I started doing a lot more applied work with elite athletes and in world class sport, but also kept a foot in academia. So I was primarily kind of lecturing and teaching, but doing a lot of consultancy work in in world class sport. Um, so then, as the sort of sporting scene in the UK shifted from say the late eighties through the early nineties, lottery funding into the world class systems in the late nineties, early two thousands, um, I kind of lived through all of that and was privileged in in that sense to to be there at the birth of a system and through that system and and see it evolve and see it change um so through that the 90s i was i was still kind of primarily a foot in in education lecturing doing a lot of coach education as well um but also had had roles in governing bodies and world class programs as a consultant so um i've kind of lived in in the space in between things a lot um and so then probably early 2000s i decided to i had the opportunity to to step away from the teaching and become um to to lead the talent performance programs at loughborough university which are you know quite stellar in terms of what they they achieve in terms of performance levels and athletes who go on to become senior international athletes um so I kind of became the performance manager for those programs. So it was in an educational institution, but not teaching students. It was more that world-class world and a lot of interaction with governing bodies, a lot of interaction with talent programs and pathways across governing bodies and working with some um, really special world-class coaches who were the university's own, own coaches with about sort of 350 junior internationally international athletes a year in, in our systems um, and, and work stayed there for kind of 12 years. So kind of three, three cycles. Uh, and, and then in sort of 2015, I decided that actually probably doing another cycle wasn't the right thing. So I stepped away from that. And by that point, I, I got to a stage where I was disquieted and discomforted by what I felt was the disconnect a little bit between some of my philosophies that had been growing over time and probably my educational roots and what I saw in the world-class system. And so that's the point I decided, right, I need to step back and, and wanted to go and do my own doctorate, um, looking at some of those things. And I suppose the other thing to say is in that latter period at Loughborough, probably like 2008, 2015, I'd also uh, stepped into the world of being a, a, a director on the board of, of eventually three different governing bodies of sport so all at that that during that time I was doing my work as a practitioner still on some world-class programs I was managing talent programs and I was seeing the world as a you know administrator uh, in, in terms of sport strategy and those kind of things so I think I became discomforted because of the clashes the, the little moments of conflict where I could see a situation and go well with my educator's hat on I want to do this with with my performance manager's hat on, I want to do that. And with my administrator's hat on, I want to do something completely different. And, and all of that kind of centred around what I was seeing the young people, the young athletes going through. Um, so that's kind of a, a really quick potted history of, of my life up to the point I started doing 
doing the PhD. Mm-hmm. Can you remember some concrete situations or do you have some examples of, you've written about this tension between the performance self and the educator self. When would this tension become apparent? Yeah, well, there were, I think the, it, it's interesting that, that in my um, my PhD, my autoethnography, there were, I, I boiled it down to two primary examples where I got concerned about the tensions. Um, so, so there was never like an, this was an evolution of discomfort. It wasn't an epiphany that you suddenly wake up this morning and say, I don't like this. It was more a, a slow incremental growth of lots of little things adding to it. But there were two, two good examples. One, over a three year period, uh, I worked with two different sports teams in the in the same sport, um, both chain, chasing a particular performance goal, and with each of those teams, I worked for with them for two years. And interesting, a lot of the players were the same. One was at international level, one was at the highest domestic level. So a lot of the same players involved. And in both of those journeys, we did all the right world class performancey type behavioural things, lots of planning. Uh, lots of controlling what the athletes do, uh, all of the things you would expect. And on both of those journeys, we got to the final game and we started really badly. And then we got to the final quarter of each of those games, still trailing. And then we got to the final 15 seconds of each of those games with the scores level. And in one of those, we won the ball, scored, won the game. And in the other one, and I could, it's etched in my memory, we threw the ball away and lost in the final five seconds of the game. And and the, the thing that really struck me was, other than those final 10 seconds, those two journeys were the same. For the young athletes in those journeys, it was the same processes you were going through. It was the same intensity of experience. It was the same kind of relationships you were developing. All of those things were the same. But one of those journeys was labelled a success, and the other one was labelled a failure. And I was sitting there going... But they only differed by 10 seconds. How can you say out of two years, that two years is a success because of the final 10 seconds, and that two years is a failure because of the final 10 seconds? And and so what are we telling these athletes about what's important? You know, Because there was so much richness and depth in those experiences um, that, that in, in both of them that actually, surely we have to see we have to be able to see this world in a different way. We have to have to understand the the quality of experience and the meaning individuals are drawing from those two year journeys as being of the highest value, not the final ten seconds. So that was that was one kind of key incident. The other one was working with a young athlete who, um, to say his approach to being in education was was loose would be an understatement. They, they'd arrived at university, they'd failed their first year, they'd changed course, they'd had a crack at the first year on a second course, they'd failed that. They were now on their third attempt at the first year and they'd come through to the end of the academic year with, with a, a kind of profile which said you should leave the university. Um, and the academic department wanted to support them and give them yet another chance. And that individual sport desperately wanted them to stay in the training environment and because of my role I had to decide whether or not I was going to sign a piece of paper to say yes that I, I, I agree that that individual should be supported 
And through lots of discussion with colleagues and, and things, we decided not to sign that piece of paper, which meant that athlete had to leave the university and they had to get a part-time job to stay in the training environment. And and so I didn't do what the educators wanted and I didn't do what the sport wanted, but we did what we thought was right for that young person. And actually, 12 months down the line, they came back into the university, made good on what wasn't hadn't they hadn't got the first time around and became a model student Mm -hmm. and I looked at that thinking actually that there's more to life isn't it that young person learnt more in that year of not being able to study and not being able to do their sport in the same way and and that was such a pivotal experience for them and I started to question okay so so what are we doing with these young people are we really concerned with what is best for them in their life or are we just concerned with what's best for them because actually this keeps them on a talent pathway? Or are we concerned with what's best for them because it actually keeps them in the university and it's another statistic of another individual who's passed a course? So I started to question again, how are we viewing this holistic life here? You know, are, are we are we really interested in what's best for this person? Because at that moment in time, what was best for that person was for them to be told actually your behaviours aren't good enough to remain here. You need to go and relearn something or redo something. Or do we just kind of cope with all of that and brush over it and to, to keep them on some talent pathway? So probably those were the two best examples of experiences that made me uncomfortable about what are we telling them about what's important in life and how are we actually helping them to grow in a way that their life is going to become more meaningful further down the line so sorry that was a very long-winded response to your question but I guess what it, it demonstrates is how passionate and important those things were becoming for me as a as a practitioner and a professional mm-hmm. I think we've earlier had these conversations about the instrumentalization of education and how dual career has really become the normative route for a young athlete and so I've also seen in my studies that even those athletes who are getting fairly good grades at school and everything seems to be quite okay, but they are drawing very little meaning from their education. And it's not something that they think about when they think about the future. Their future imaginations are all about sport and not connected with what they're studying at the time. So it's more like a tick box exercise. And Sometimes these dual career programs can also unintentionally kind of bring this education is your backup plan, you know, that you can fall on, but not something that is considered intrinsically meaningful and valuable. I, I absolutely know. And, and I think, you know, we have had this conversation in the past. We, in, in the European discourse around this kind of lifestyle support, we call it dual career. Mm-hmm. Why? Why do we think that life is reduced to a sporting channel and a formal educational channel. I, if I look back at my childhood, my my growth as a person, th- there's an awful lot of things that were important to me that existed outside of those two things. So if we narrow our response to how should we develop young people holistically to dual career, I, I think we're missing the point. Um, and I think certainly from a UK perspective, when you look at the shift in sporting philosophy towards a more instrumental approach, 
that stemmed through government policy as much as anything else. That same government policy influenced education. So our education is instrumental, our sport is instrumental. And the idea that you can get two different domains that are instrumentally driven and both interested in their own outcomes to really mesh together for what is good for the young person seems to me a, a strange, strange idea. And I do wonder whether we've come up with this ideal of dual career, because actually it suits the background of the people doing the research. Because as researchers, we're sitting in academia, we're sitting in formal education. So why are we going to tell the world that actually there are other things that are more important than formal education? I do wonder that there's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in, in some of the work that goes on. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think we have some some issues there that we're not being fully critical of ourselves in the, in the way we approach some of this stuff. Um, and I also... I also wonder as well whether I've heard in a couple of places people saying, well, the, the holy grail is, is, is to prove that performance lifestyle support enhances performance. And I sit there going, no, it's not. The point of performance lifestyle support is to support the person. It doesn't matter if it changes performance. What, what are you on about? Um, because if that's what you think, then you're not really about the person. You're still about the medal. You're still about the athlete, not the person as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think we, we need to ask ourselves some quite deep and searching questions at times about the way we approach things. And, and like you say, for governing bodies and sports, the performance lifestyle thing becomes a tick box exercise. Have we done something to give them a qualification? Yes, tick. That's our well-being job done. Have we done something to help them with a the career? Yes, we have. Tick. That's our job done. And and just leave aside any of the, the issues about whether you're allowing that person to, to understand or draw meaning from their experience. We just want to tick a box so we can look at the world and say, yeah, we were OK. We did a good job by that person. Yeah, this is what I wonder about sometimes as well, that some people in a way sell this well-being emphasis in a way that you know athletes who are feeling healthy and who have a good well-being also perform better but so I think we have to be aware of the possibility that elite sport can also be quite unhealthy for certain people certain circumstances and you've written about this (laughs) arms race to more and more olympic medals so I think we also have to seriously consider the question that at least in some circumstances these environments are actually not very healthy for for young people to be in. We we absolutely do. Uh, and but it's it's almost like we it's emperor's new clothes a little bit that 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 that's such a deeply challenging question we prefer not to ask it. Mm-hmm. So so we'll we'll just keep fudging the question so you look at the the objectives the current objectives for elite sport in the uk and it's to inspire a nation and inspire a nation to do what it's not entirely clear um and you look at the you know the idea that 2012 and the olympics in the uk was going to have a massive impact upon grassroots participation and it hasn't the the evidence for that link is is weak uh, at, at best so so you've got to ask the question, what are we doing this for? And what value is 
you know, the position on the medals table. And what, what is the value in winning your 48th gold medal as opposed to winning your 35th gold medal? We, we simply don't ask ourselves those questions because it's far too difficult and challenging. And because that would lead us down the pathway of saying, well, well what is the cost to the individual of engaging in this pathway? And it leads you to questions like, well, well, hold on, let's think about the mathematics of talent development. Only about 0.5 of a percent of those who enter a talent pathway will actually reach the end of it. So what are we giving the other 99.5%? And, and we don't want to ask questions like that because it would mean us, we, we'd have to really critique our systems at a very different philosophical level and come up with other ideas and ways and reasons for engaging in talent development. That's not to say I'm against talent development. I'm not. I I, I think high-performance sport is such an amazing experience, if done right, that you prov- it, it gives you vivid examples of excellence. It, it allows people to learn how to pursue excellence in a really meaningful way that there's beauty in in high performance that there's you know sublime moments of skill and, and engaging young people in experiencing all of that is is just amazing if philosophically you're doing it for the reason of allowing them to draw meaning from that rather than for the sole purpose of finding out who might win you a medal in in four years time or eight years time so I'm not against high performance sport. I think it's an amazing thing and it's important in society and we should continue to pursue it and fund it and therefore talent development as well. But our reasons for doing it need to shift because that's, I think, is our, our reason for doing it that causes the, the problems in those environments where they do become unhealthy for individuals and mentally damaging for individuals. And we need to confront that a little bit more head on. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, you interact and, and you worked inside elite sport and talent development for such a long time. And I think nowadays, well, now in the recent weeks and with Beijing Olympics, it's impossible to avoid all these debates about the serious human rights issues and the environmental damage of having Olympics held in a place with very little natural snow and like this whole unsustainability of the Mm. Olympics. And I think now the discussions are more in the media than ever before, but it doesn't mean that before there were no issues with the Olympics. So how do, for example, for athletes who you worked with, and also those people inside the elite sport organizations, are you having these conversations that there is this doubt whether having this elite sport system, you know, can it continue? And when your sport is so politically flammable, it's very difficult to be in these environments as well. It's a really, really good question. At at one level, I don't think athletes are particularly, my, my gut instinct is I don't think athletes themselves are particularly concerned. They, they they want, generally speaking, I think they want to train, they want to compete, they want to express themselves through that. Therefore, they tend not to want to think about the bigger issue of where am I being sent to compete and what does that mean? So 
whilst as individuals they i think they might have some concerns about those things i i think they would rather those questions didn't exist in a certain way because it it, it makes it incredibly difficult for them as individuals that's it at, at the governing body level it, it's really interesting i i think there is a there's a fundamental problem in elite sport with kind of group think you get people on their own and talk to them about issues and and i think they are alive to them and and they're aware of them but it's almost like the system exists outside of the individuals in it as a, as a separate thing and they're they're aware in different sports certainly in the uk of not doing anything to threaten their funding streams and not wanting to challenge the status quo because actually that might cause them problems in in retaining their 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 funding so the system exercises control through the funding streams and the funding streams are driven by that f- fundamental underpinning instrumental philosophy and and government policy and and so it's really difficult to step outside of that and and voice concern particularly because it's not always that easy to see what the solutions are and so it's almost become this kind of snowball running downhill elite sport. Nobody can see how to change its course. Nobody can see how to meaningfully enact change. So I think if, if you ask me what, 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 what do I think the solutions are, I think the solutions are to try and create the platform for more and more voices to ask questions in a positive and constructive way. To, to build that noise around it, which says actually there's a different way of doing things. Mm-hmm. I think and I think that's actually important. Thinking about it, if you just tell every elite sport it's wrong and it's doing things that are wrong and and it shouldn't happen, it's not going to listen because it's it's just not. There are too many vested interests. However, if you can say to elite sport actually, you know this is a really great thing, but there's a different way of doing it then I think you're more likely to be listened to. I'm not entirely sure I answered your question there because I was I was kind of that was a bit of a stream of consciousness from Yeah, I mean I guess now it's not it's almost impossible not to be aware of the problems. I mean the next step is to try to envision what are the alternatives, where can we go from here? And so this is the big task. I, I think I think you you've kind of described it incredibly well that there has to be a collective movement to create an alternative vision of the future. You're not going to change anything just by telling current systems that they're incorrect and they're wrong. You've got to give them something else to to latch onto uh, and to move towards. Otherwise, you're not going to get movement. Yeah. Let's then talk a little bit about your PhD research. So you kind of stepped back and spent a few years thinking of the talent development and the philosophies underpinning it, then you chose to go with the autoethnographic route. It's more accepted than it was 10, 20 years ago, but it's still a little bit risky research. And I found it funny that your daughter had told you that, is it just old man's memoirs or, or what's the point of writing all this? So I wonder, maybe just hear a few words of the process. It's quite personal to kind of get into this uh, reflective process. I, I guess when I started really digging into the, the research literature around this, I, I found what I was doing was that um, I could read a paper and I could put my educator's hat on and I'd say critique it in a certain way. And I could take that hat off and I'd put performance hat on and I'd critique it in a different way. 
And whilst I talk in the thesis that there are two two parts of me, a performance part and an educational part, actually, even in the performance, whether I was seeing the world as a practitioner or a manager or administrator would change my view. So I was completely schizophrenic and, and more multiple personalities doing this research. And, and I think more than once my wife found me in my study shouting at myself because I disagreed with myself. So I was wrestling with this. I know who I am and I have strong opinions and I, and I have a, a experience in, in this area. How can I research this by being a disembodied researcher who's independent of the research process? And then I actually came across the work of uh, Katrina Douglas's work. Uh, and I think Katrina's been, been in, your, in your series um, where, you know, she was foregrounding her experiences as a professional golfer. And, and suddenly that was a light bulb moment for me, which is I, I don't need to write myself out of this. I shouldn't be writing myself out of this. I should be writing myself into this. Otherwise, I, I'm lying. Otherwise, I, I'm presenting myself and my research as independent when it's not. To a certain extent, it wasn't me choosing autoethnography. I think it was actually autoethnography choosing me that that I had to do it in the way that I did as a first step on a research journey. Um, and I was incredibly lucky to have Emily Ryle as a, as a doctoral supervisor. And I think you've had Emily on, on your series as well. Methodologically, one of the challenges about doing autoethnography is that when you look at the autoethnographic literature, nobody writes about their methodology. We just kind of say, yeah, we reflected on stuff and here's the answer, which is great, but it doesn't particularly help you in moving forwards. So part of what I wanted to do was try and be clear about what my process was, that I started with a huge document pool of notes and notebooks and emails and reports I'd written spanning my career. And the way I approached it was I sifted through that to start to identify the issues that were more pertinent to me. And, and I had some kind of response criteria in my head. So if I was reading something and I thought, well, if I put this hat on, I see it this way. And if I put that hat on, I see it another way. That was interesting. And I delved deeper into it. And if I looked at it and thought, oh, I, I don't quite agree with how I handled that or what was going on, then I delved deeper into it. And so it was a process of sifting this evidence pool to kind of refine it. And then reflecting, trying to reflect intensely on those experiences so I was doing a lot of writing of reflective notes and a lot of writing of, of vignettes some of which were kind of trying to describe factual things and some of which actually started to become a little more fictional where I'd write something that expressed the amalgam of three or four experiences and I certainly started to write more aesthetically rather than trying to write in an objective uh, disemb disembodied way and then through that process of refinement, started to, to summarise down to perhaps two or three sets of experiences that really expressed my disquiet about the situation. And once I got to there, then I went to write, I'm now going to take these things and critique them in relation to culture, literature, because I wanted my autoethnography to be robust in the way it tackled the, the interaction between personal experience and, and theory. Um, I think there's a lot of evocative autoethnography out in the world, which is amazing and brilliant to listen to and read, but it isn't quite what I wanted to do. So from there, then, I, I started to play with how the thesis was structured. And, and I actually ended up being, I, I wrote one chapter around, here's the, the, the literature on talent development 
with some personal critique of it. And then here's my experience of talent development with critique from the literature. So I, I tried to come at it different chapters from either ends. And what I also discovered was, was that writing was a process of reflection. You didn't do your reflection, come up with your answer and then write it. The process of writing was part of the reflective process. So I would be writing something and then going, no, 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 that's, that's wrong. I've now got to go back to that previous bit and change that and then come forwards again. So producing the thesis, the, the challenge in a thesis is that we, we present things in a linear way. You know, introduction, um, literature review, methods, results, discussion, bang, done. And, mm. and doing the autoethnography was nothing like that. And I was bouncing up and down from refining the question to writing something in a conclusion. And, and so I was, I would say I was layering the, it's like building a wall. You, you layer up and down the thesis until you get to a point of thinking, yeah, okay, that's, I, I like the overall thing that I've written there. So it was a very, very different way of doing research. And I, I opened up far more to writing things aesthetically and, and opened up some of the limitations to current approaches to reflective practice. And Emily and I are just finishing a chapter for a book on reflective practice, which in, in which we're kind of challenging the really formulaic way a lot of people do it to say, actually, there's, there's a more aesthetic way to do it that might give you greater meaning so it, it was just a fascinating process to go through at the end of it was it my old man memoirs um yeah to a certain extent there's a there's a there's a part of that i mean my my, my daughter who made that comment is is doing her own doctorate at the moment so we have some fascinating dinner table discussions about epistemology and ontology but, but, but as soon as my daughter said oh so it's your old man memoirs my wife chipped in and said no, no 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 he just wants to get a few things off his chest and and i wrote all of that into the thesis because to a certain extent there's truth in that that, that in, when you're doing an autoethnography you do have something you want to express and and the autoethnography allows you to express that in a way that there there is some critical assessment of what you're saying. The other my other family relate in instant in relation to the thesis was I told my niece who's eleven what I was doing and how big it was and how many words I was writing, and all she said was why didn't you just get to the point? <laughs> <laughs> and so actually I, I I think one of my learnings was we should take our academic pomposity sometimes and expose it to real people and it and it keeps us grounded a little bit more but it, it was a wonderful process to engage in not easy but wonderful and I would love to see more people exploring their own life story in this way because I think there's a lot of richness and there's a lot of depth and there's a really great truth in people writing about themselves and their experiences um, as much as there is in doing research in that in that more traditional yeah i i fully agree and autoethnographies like the work from katrina douglas they are really a pleasure to read and they also resonate in a in a different way but it doesn't say that they are less you know conceptually and theoretically insightful and actually help you to rethink uh, many of the issues that we're dealing with in research so i also I've been really delighted to see there are more autoethnographies than, for example, 10 years ago. And I'm also looking forward to seeing more of them in the future. 
Yeah, I, I think one of the things I've encountered a couple of times, it, interesting, most of the people who I talk to about my research are fascinated by the process. So I, yeah. from, from fellow academics, I'm not getting a pushback to say this is not authentic or appropriate. Mm. Occasionally you get people who go, well, it isn't science. And and actually, I think I've got to a point where my, my response to that is, do you know what? I don't care. I don't care whether you think it's science or not. I think what I'm talking about is important and it's meaningful. So does does it really matter what somebody else labels it as? As long as, you know, there's rigor in there and robustness and, and there's clarity of thought. Those are the things that I now look for in what I'm reading rather than whether or not I can kind of tick an epistemological or ontological box and say, yes, I think this classifies as this kind of science or that kind of science. So it's it, it's very much changed me as a scientist or as a researcher. Uh, I, I would say engaging in the process. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I think we have now explored kind of the background story, some of the big challenges to tackle, some of the issues and discomforts, and the process of your research as well. So in the second part of the conversation, we'll actually get into your vision of the future. Um, looking at craftsmanship, elite building. And so this will be very exciting. But thanks so much for the conversation. Let's have a little break and then we'll move to the second part. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes. So be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.